Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, brought to you in association with Castelli. I am Joe Robinson. I am joined, as ever, by Mr. James Spender. Hello, Mr. Joe Robinson. I'm here as ever. And on today's episode, we sit down and chat with the 2004 Paris-Roubaix winner, Magnus Backstead, and Trek Segafredo women's rider, Eleanor Backstead, as we discuss their dream of becoming the first ever father-daughter duo to win the hell of the North. But before then, some housekeeping, as we rattle through some things that we're liking in the world of cycling at the moment, and some things we'd rather leave behind. James, as ever, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I hope you are doing well. Please tell me some things in the world of cycling that you are enjoying at the moment and some things that you are not enjoying. Well, Joe, it is always a pleasure, never a chore, to see your face and to hear your chitter-chatter. Um, the world of cycling continues to be a uh, mixed bag. And one of the things that rises to the top, the cream, is colourful bikes for me. I've had a couple of colourful bikes on test and I've really enjoyed them. And it sounds very shallow um, to like a bike because in the case of the Cinelli Pressure, Cinelli's new aero bike, it's got a little smiley face that's painted onto the back of the fork crown that you can't see until you rotate the bars. So you never really, no one's ever going to see it. Um, and I've just taken uh, possession of a Genesis Fugio, which is a gravel bike by Genesis Steel. And it's got this amazing pink to purple fade, a bit like if anyone remembers those early Klein bikes in the mid-90s. Um, or or 1990s WWE, WCW wrestler Bret Hart. Yeah, or even Ultimate Warrior. This is the sort of bike that Ultimate Warrior would ride. So it's just a really nice bike to look at. It's very, It brings a smile to my face. And the thing of it is, a chap emailed this week and he said, I've got this uh, conundrum. I want to buy uh, a Bianchi Ultra XR4 or a Pinarello F12. What a conundrum to have. Oh, I mean, imagine being in that conundrum. Imagine being in that conundrum. That's pretty serious. Which one should I buy? You, you guys have reviewed both. You personally have reviewed both. Which one do you think is the best bike? And as I said, ultimately, mate, Whichever one is the one that tugs at your heartstrings, buy that because if it tugs at your heartstrings, you'll want to ride it and you'll never know what you didn't have. So I just say buy the prettiest bike that you can afford and screw the rest. And in the end, he bought a 07 plate Saab. <laughs> yeah. For about the same price. Yeah. A nice little 9.3 turbo. Uh, you can still buy the parts even though they discontinued the car. Is it? So, um, so that's good. And the other thing is not really cycling, but I've got a stand up desk. I've seen it in action, James. It's impressive. Listener, dear listener, it's an impressive sight. It is impressive. It's, it's such a basic thing. It's just got a melamine top and a little, like, kind of uh, um, extendable base thing. It sits on top of a normal desk. £93 off. Uh, I'm not even going to say where it's from because let's not plug that lot. But it's not expensive and it's changed my life. And the thing is, you can have a little dance when you're typing as well now. True. And you can stretch out the car simultaneously. You can. That's a separate base plate extension. But yes, you can do that too. And uh, what's something that's not tickling your fancy in the world of cycling or just in life? Just in life. Well, I mean, as much as I just said I like the colour of this uh, Genesis bike, the fact of the matter, uh, the fact of it is it also has 18, no fewer than 18 eyelet bolts, holes and bolts on it. So that's for putting luggage, etc. on it. So that's 18, right? I did the maths, I ran the numbers, I weighed a, I weighed a bolt. That's 60 grams of bolts. What? 
What? And I'm only going to use four of them maximum for my two bottle cages. I'm not attaching loads of luggage to it. I don't think anyone really is. So bikes with loads of bolt holes kind of doing my head in because I just don't see them as... They're, yeah, I, I'm not really sure how to compare it to anything other than it's just a pointless feature. Fair enough. Yeah. But hey-ho. I mean, maybe you save some weight because you're drilling loads of holes in the frame. Yeah. So taking out metal there. I, yeah, I don't think that the 60 grams will really matter that much as it is, a, I believe, a steel bike. It is a Reynolds 725 steel frame, yeah. So it's not it's not exactly a weight wiener. No, 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 no. Um, and also, just to add to it though, dropper posts. I'm just not entirely sure we need them. Dropper posts on gravel bikes, on any bikes. Unless you need to eject yeah. from the saddle, like a, in a James Bond car. Now track. that could work, but imagine it trying to eject Hang on. at the same time. We're on to something here. At the same time being in your cleats. With a very high tension spring, so the ejection happens. Would you just eject and take the bike with you? No, I think you'd basically be injected in half. It would, rip, oh. it would tear you at the knees. Oh. So your top half would shoot up, and then your calves up to your knees would stay. As if my knees weren't bad enough as it is. Well, I don't know. Gain a few inches. <laughs> anyway, that's me, mate. So, uh, so how's how's life down in uh, sunny Kent? What have you been enjoying? Oh, it's good, mate. It's good. Um, things I'm enjoying are salted cashews. Nice. Good nut. The X-Files. Excellent. Restarted the X-Files from the beginning. All 12 series, 24 episodes a series. That's me sorted till at least Christmas. Um, I'm also enjoying the fact that Matteo van der Poel is clearly a freak of nature. Um, and last week at Terreno Adriatico was cold. So instead of dropping back to the team car to grab a rain jacket as it was raining, decided to attack from 60 kilometres out um, and won a stage. Um, and he bonked in the last 20k. But the thing that I'm enjoying most, James, is that I got to see your face in person this week, didn't I? Oh, you did. Yeah, you did. You did. We crossed paths. So we both went into our central London HQ uh, because we had some bike logistics to take care of, some sending, some packing, some building we had to do in our office. Uh, We coincided at the same time, went for a little ride around Regent's Park, COVID secure ride. We had a COVID secure cappuccino and cinnamon bun from the Ole and Stein Danish bakery in our office and we got to speak to people in person for the what seems like the first time in a year and it was it was lovely James to see you in person oh thanks mate you haven't changed but the best thing about it all I think the best thing about it all and you can agree on this is that we saw someone riding a brand new specialized S-Works Tarmac SL7 in a button-down Oxford shirt and a set of jean shorts, but also wearing an S-Works TT helmet. That's right. He had the uh, he had the S-Works Evade helmet on, so he's got his aero helmet. He had some really cracking calves, didn't he? He knows who he is. <laughs> he knows. If you're listening, you know who you are because they were, you know, a set of calves that would even make Peter Sagan envious. Yeah, they look like when um, you've just taken all of the chicken off the bone. And you've just got the bone and a bit of cartilage. But on like a good free-range corn-fed chicken, very, very lean. He was definitely, I mean, I'm going to throw it out there, he's definitely a triathlete. I'm not saying, I'm not one of those like... He came past us yeah. at twice our speed, yeah, comfortably. And he was in a pair of like three-quarter length jean shorts. Um, something I'm not liking at the moment, James. Um, so I've, I've seen like a little creep, of an, an increase of group rides. Oh dear. On the weekends, which isn't so like, so technically in England, we can ride in groups of 15, I believe, from March 29th. So the next, you know, if if the roadmap continues in the direction we want it, 
we should be able to join 14 fellow cyclists in two weeks' time. But over the last couple of weekends, I've seen I've seen a few groups of like six, seven. I've even seen a group of over 10 out riding. And you know what? I'm not saying this from a point of view as like group riding is not helping to control the spread of COVID and it's not in the spirit of things at the moment. It's not. But from my perspective, I think this is damaging to how cyclists are being perceived on the roads at the moment. You know, I think we can agree at the best of times, the relationship between cyclists and other road users can be fraught. And going out as a group of like six, seven, eight is only going to damage that relationship with certain road users that are already looking for an excuse not to like cyclists and potentially endangering the cyclists that are being sensible and going out on their own or with one other person. So yeah, I just want a little bit of patience from everyone, you know, give it a couple of weeks and then you can ride with five or six mates and it's no problem. And it's that kind of self-righteous indignation that motorists hate. Thank you, Joe. Um, We're going to leave it there because that's a, a rabbit hole that we could go down and probably get ourselves in trouble with the Daily Mail over. So instead, we're going to go into our conversation with Magnus and Eleanor Backstead. So you know Magnus Backstead as Perry Rayner and a Eurosport commentator. His daughter Eleanor is now a world tour women's cyclist of Trek Segafredo. And they have had a lifelong dream to both win Perry Bay. And now there is a women's Perry Bay. It could become a reality. So we talked to them about that and about loads of other things like being able to speak Welsh too. So give it a listen. So today we're joined by our first father-daughter guests in the form of Magnus and Eleanor Backstead. You all know Magnus best for his time most recently in the Eurosport commentary booth with Declan Quigley and of course for being the winner of the 2004 Paris-Roubaix, a race he claimed to live, breathe and even eat. Eleanor is the eldest daughter of Magnus and also a bike racer, age 19. She is a double European track champ, a junior world bronze medalist in the individual time trial and a winner of the under-19 Gent-Wevel game. A day that was pretty special for the Backsteads, considering their little sister Zoe also won the under-17 race. She is now a Women's World Tour Pro with Trek Segafredo, which finished the 2020 season as the number one ranked team in the world. And if things keep continuing in the right direction, Magnus and Eleanor could become history makers and the first ever father-daughter pair to have both competed at Paris-Roubaix. So Magnus, I'll come to you first. You've never made a secret of how much you love Perry Roubaix. You say that you you told us a few years ago that you lived, breathed, and even ate Roubaix, which I don't know what that means, but it sounds hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> you had posters of Gilbert de Clos Lasselle, the old man on your bedroom wall. Um, how did it feel when when you saw the news that the ASO had pulled their finger out and that there was actually going to be a women's Roubaix and your two daughters could follow in your footsteps potentially one day and race Paris Roubaix. Well, it was obviously a massive, massive day for women cycling first and foremost, really. And um, you know, with both of the girls having done the mini Paris Roubaix, where they were allowed girls to 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 do that, um, and they've done that on a number of occasions. And I don't think there's been a single year where we come back from there where they haven't, in one way or another, another written an email to the UCI and. To ASO on in the car, you know, on the on their phones, stating that you know it's it's um, an outrage that there is in the women's Paris Bay, and finally now to see that there will be one, I think um, 
it's just nice to see that they can follow their dreams and and you know go on and do the races that I the women deserve to to be doing and um yeah obviously it's got a, a special place in my heart and you know I think it will be a, quite an emotional day when I get to see um well Eleanor hopefully the first one to to get um onto the start line of that and no doubt I will be somewhere along the route, um, probably in the forest somewhere and, um, you know, having a look at, uh, you know, going across the uh, Carrefour de l'Arbre and all that to uh, to cheer her on. And and for you, Eleanor, when when you saw the announcement, because I don't know if you had any pre-warning, we didn't. It was a very, it was a surprise for us. We saw it pop up and we were like, oh, that's amazing. Did, did you finally think, wow, there's, I now have this opportunity to do something that's so special to my dad and to our family, which is Paris-Roubaix. How, so how did you feel like when that got announced? Well, first of all, I didn't believe it because <laughs> it just popped up and a few girls messaged in the group chat and I just thought, nah, someone's trying to scam us here. <laughs> you know, can't get excited. And then more and more articles came out and I was like, oh my God, like finally it's happened. And like for us as a team, we have so many strong, strong classics riders that we were just all so happy and yeah it's just such it was such a big day for women's sport that it's finally decided to happen and allow us to have like equal racing because it is such such a big race and like such an important race in our family as well that you know now potentially being able to ride it is yeah it's incredible (laughs) Uh, did you ever have the actual opportunity to dream about winning it because when you were young when you're like obviously you're still young but when you were growing up and you knew you obviously your dad would have told you the story of how he won many times Too and many, probably. <laughs> you, <laughs> is, is that but you can for instance the tour of flanders which is the other end of holy week as a as a woman you can grow up thinking i would love to win flanders because it existed as a race but Roubaix never did so when you're a young rider are you ever in your head going like dreaming of you know attacking on the car for the labra even though there's no women's version of that race yet? Um, I always hoped that there would be a race and that I would be able to win it, but you can never really dream about something that's not actually there yet, you know? Um, So that's like a tricky one because, yeah, I always hoped that there would be, in my career, um, a Paris-Roubaix, but I always thought that it would be you know, middle to my career, like of my career. Um, so for it to happen so soon was like incredible. And, you know, now I can start dreaming about how I want to win this race or, you know, where I want to attack. But yeah, before never really, it's always just been like a wish for it to actually happen first. <laughs> Are you now a kind of the de facto rider because you have the Baxter name on your shoulders for, for Trek, all, all your teammates kind of just like now pushing you gently to the front through the medium of WhatsApp saying, okay, now's your chance to shine. Uh, no, not really, actually. Um, I think they don't want to put pressure on me because they know what the surname carries. And without getting too political on the UCI, Magnus, as I mentioned, there's there's been six, there's a, for instance, the Tour of Flanders, 16 years of it this year. Liège, another one of the one-day classics in spring, is now an established women's race. Why do you think it took so long for the women's Paris-Roubaix? Because in my head, I know this sounds silly, it's an A to B race and it actually seems like probably one of the easier ones for logistics because it all finishes in a very neat and tidy velodrome with a fairly big car park from when I went there, if I remember rightly. 
it's not like Flanders where it's interchanging, crisscrossing, and there's worries about you know them hitting the Uden, the uh, Quermont at the same time. So why do you think that it's taken so long? It's it's a very good question actually, and and something that I've I've pondered over many many a time, and I, I haven't really come up with a with a with a straightforward answer to uh, to that. Um, you know, one can only speculate, and I don't know whether they thought if the organisers or whether it's UCI or whoever it is that the, you know that that make make the call um, that there should be a women's Paris-Roubaix, whether they thought it would be too too hard, which again is something that's I, I don't get. You know, I don't I don't understand that. Um, they're fully very capable bike riders, all of the professional um, female riders. Um, and yeah, it is a brutal day on the bike, but it's also probably one of the most incredible days on the bike when, when, whether you finish first or last, it's, it, everyone has got a story to tell and everyone will take that with them to the grave. I've had many, many bad races on, um, on Roubaix where, where things haven't got to plan. And I think those are probably some of the funnest memories and some of the most vivid memories as, as much as anything as well, though, you know, those days when you ended up going across a field because you know you're trying to avoid a crash and then you're going you know head first into the mud instead and and all of these kind of the carnage that comes with Roubaix and on and off the bike yeah I, I think everyone deserves to have an opportunity at, at doing that and you know seeing that there, there's been a men's under 23 a men's junior race um I, I just couldn't understand why we couldn't get a, a women's race. And some of the other, um, you know, the, the, the under-23 men's Paris-Roubaix is not even on the same day. So um, why couldn't we fit in a, a women's version on the same day as the under-23s or however we wanted to sort of feel it? Obviously, in my book, it, it belongs on on the second Sunday um, in, in April where, you know, the, the, the big... That's the big Paris-Roubaix day, and that's when the women's race should be held um, and move anything else somewhat because it's not really gonna it's not gonna take anything away from uh, I think the the sort of pro- progression that the juniors and under twenty threes are having getting to ride the race. Um, but I think the two sort of flagship categories should be held on 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 the holy Sunday of uh, second day, second Sunday in April. The weird one for me is whenever I had like a non-cycling friend ask me about bike racing, I'd always be like, I need to show him Perry Bay because that's the most insane one. And it was always strange that I have this, this one day and everyone goes, oh my God, that's in- insane. Who would even do that? But there was no women's equivalent and it felt kind of embarrassing sometimes. And it, I think it must be embarrassing for, for a lot of people in the cycling industry, in the cycling world that, the the one real like gemstone in our sport didn't have parity for me for me it, it's it's a bit crazy that they allowed the um the young girls up to the age of uh, 14 i believe it was the when you rode the last year um to ride the the mini parabay um you know i think you know it's 36 37 kilometers of of racing but they still went across the carrefour and uh, the rest of the sectors you know so they had about six or seven sectors in included in that race but then as soon as they then become, you know, 16, 17, and juniors, under 23s, then all of a sudden, and, and even professionals, and then all of a sudden they, they, they shouldn't be allowed to do it because it was too hard or dangerous or whatever it might be that the, the, the reason was for it. But it's, it's great to see now, finally, um, we, we've got this 
this one day to uh, to look forward to and I believe that it's going to be one of the best races that we've seen um, in some time uh, and if the World Tour Racing, Women's World Tour Racing this year has been anything to go by it's going to be an absolute cracker next year. Yeah, and it means you don't have to write to David Lepashin anymore. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. You can save yourself that email. Yeah, I mean, if my if my very rudimentary maths is right, it's 124 years of people petitioning any you know, various governing bodies to get Paris-Roubaix off the ground because the first one was uh, 1896. And then, and this you guys are probably going to have to correct me, but Eleanor, you would have been two or three when your father won in 2004? Three, Three, yeah. yeah. In fact, in the when I watched it earlier, James, yeah. uh, Phil Liggett, the great Phil Liggett, mentions the fact that you'd recently moved to Wales in the commentary with your young first young daughter. He was like, oh, he's just settled down with a family and he's moved to Wales, Magnus. Yeah. <laughs> so you, actually get a, you actually got a name check on the day that your dad won. Uh, is, so. that, is, that, is that because Wales is the closest you can get to Belgium without being a Belgian? I, th- I think so, weather-wise, definitely. <laughs> but they often say, I mean, this is a, so it's a two-part question. Um, they often say when you have um, a child as a, as a racer, it changes your perspective. And we know, you know, we've seen people like Museo nearly, you know, Joe just talked about his hematoma. <laughs> Museo nearly lost a leg from uh, from an infection that he got when he crashed um, at Roubaix one year. So did it change your mentality to really throw yourself into a race like that? Because you can't go half measures. There is no half measures at all. Like you said, it's, it is is 100% commitment to that one. And anything less than 100% commitment, then it becomes dangerous. Um, and I think for me, I don't think I changed, my mentality changed um, going into that one or any other years after that, really. It was more, it gave me another reason to to push harder to um you know establish myself as one of the potential um you know pre-race favorites and obviously having won it once um i didn't want to be that sort of meteor that landed on earth and you know one guy did it once and then was never to be seen again so for me it was always almost more important than to come back the following year and the year after that to to show that i was i was fully capable of winning that on on any on any occasion really um and with with Eleanor and and Zoe around as well yeah it didn't really change me an awful lot it was just I wanted to to just make sure that I did my job in the best way possible and if I'm going to be away from them um the only the only reason I can be away from my family is by doing my job in the best way I possibly could um and and hopefully that's something that's been transmitted across to to these two that you know if you're going to do something you do it a hundred percent or you you don't do it at all and and you know that that if you live by that and i think you you can go really far within the sport as well so the second part of the question is based on that that tra- well, you, you mentioned there that kind of transmittance of that hundred percent attitude Eleanor, when did you realize this is what your dad did for a living? He specifically focused on 2.2 kilometers of cobbles through a really dirty forest, plus every other sector on the way to a velodrome, which was outdoors and concrete and possibly very slippery. And so when did you become aware of that? And when did you think, hey, I might quite like to do this myself? (laughs) Um, I think I've always been aware of it. Um, Obviously, he won when I was like three and he's prepared for this race every year since um uh yeah i 
I don't have like a distinct memory of, you know, him, like when I found out that he was obviously, you know, into the cobbles, let's say. Um, <laughs> but I do remember, you know, growing up and I have like memories of when I was like eight or nine and going at the finish into some of the buses and, you know, then later years when he was retired, we went back, I think it was 10 years after he won and we mm. went on a, a tour and... Uh, with some people and then we watched the finish at the end um, and obviously I knew but I've seen all the videos all the you know after interviews the you know finish so many times but yeah this man <laughs> loves his cobbles <laughs> um, but I think I've just known most of my life really that I wanted to be a cyclist I think after I broke my leg the first time was when I started really training and I just decided then that that was what I wanted to do as my job um and the older I've got the the more I've turned into the type of rider that my dad is <laughs> um so I can kind of see where that's going unfortunately <laughs> no not unfortunately but uh yeah I've just kind of had more and more love for them as well over the years so do you remember the first time you rode the cobbles in Rubai? yeah talk us through it because me and James have both done them and I think we can all agree it's terrible. <laughs> Never again. At least the first time, anyway. Yeah. It must have been, like, second year under 14, so I was probably, like, 13. Um, and I was coming down this section. I was quite far in the front because when when you're that age, you, it's boys and girls mixed. Um, so I was following these boys down the middle of the section and it had rained and rained and rained and it was so slippery, there's so much mud. And they, they rode up this mud bank... And for some reason, I went, yeah, I'm going to follow them. So I followed them up this mud bank and I crashed. And then about one second later, they both crashed. And then I went straight to like the back of the peloton, I think. And then I managed to get back on and about two or three K down the road, I hit this stone about this big and I just had a double puncture. It was, I couldn't find anyone for wheels or anything, but I did manage to change and then I finished, but... It was an experience, I'll put it that way. <laughs> wow. Did you enjoy it though? Did you enjoy the, like, when you hit them and you were going over them? Because you can you can go to one or two ways. You can either be like, I never want to do this again, ever. Or you can be like, actually, that was so fun, so gnarly. Like, bring me back, like your dad did. <laughs> I think at the time I was thinking, why on earth am I doing this to myself? Um, <laughs> but afterwards, yeah, absolutely loved it. Um yeah, we went back the next year, I think. And then yeah. I wasn't allowed to do it anymore because I was too old. And then we came back to watch Zoe do it. And yeah, <laughs> I still love them. What's your uh, What's your kind of technique for riding cobbles? Everyone has one. And does it com- do you kind of discuss that um, with your dad? Like, do you have differing techniques? Is it a similar kind of way that you approach it? Um, I actually think it's very similar. Like before I crashed this year, I really started to practice on big cobbled sections because I've not actually done very many you know as a junior the only race that you have with cobbles is getting level game and that's about 500 meters down the finish um so I really they're needed... not really cobbles either no I mean they're cobbles <laughs> but they're not like cobbles cobbles yeah high, like a high street like a Welsh high street a bit worse but yeah um so I needed to practice because at this point, obviously, I thought that the racing was going to go ahead and, you know, I might ride some more races with cobbles. Um, 
and my boyfriend was sat behind me down this section of cobbles and afterwards he said to me like wow you really look like your dad when you ride the cobbles <laughs> <laughs> and I was like um thank you <laughs> no but I think we do have a very similar technique which is which is is that hands on the tops I, from your dad reminds me of like quite low cadence because obviously that's what everyone keeps on talking about um low cadence far back on and hands on the tops but um as far as i'm concerned the, the technique that i found the most efficient um obviously having tested and tested and tested uh for so many years going into race Bay, the best way really is to ride about sort of 95 to 100 rpm um and in terms of cadence so really pedaling quite quickly um it feels like the bike is moving around a lot more underneath you but you are in contact with the cobblestones at the right points a little bit more. It kind of feels like you're skimming over the top of them. And then, um, yeah, it, where you hold your hands is more, more or less where you feel comfortable uh, and how, to hand, how you handle the bike in the best possible way. So, yeah, for, for, for me, it was always just work on making sure that you can, you can control the bike on, under high cadence. And um, that also, should something happen in front of you, you can get get the bike going a little bit more again so you're a lot more responsive to the racing that goes on around you yes if you want to just kind of make your way across them in one way or another you know a slightly bigger gear and and sort of sitting back and trucking across them yeah you'll be all right doing that and you might actually feel more comfortable but in terms of outright speed on the cobbles I, like i think i mentioned to you on on a number of occasions treat it like a like a 2k pursuit so high cadence and then just really full gas and did you have um did you ride with a power meter back in 2004 were they available to you um i never raced with a power meter on because of contractual kind of issues but i always trained with it and i always used the data when when i went testing wheels and tires and front forks and and frames and all that sort of stuff we always used the data then to um to to check which actually was faster and which where i needed to produce less power to go at at, at the fastest possible speed so um yeah the the data was available to me and you know something that i invested quite a bit of money in at, at the time um to to make sure that i was I didn't give anything away, and if I could find an edge on the rest of the peloton by by doing all this uh, sort of prep beforehand, then obviously it was going to be of benefit to me. So um, uh, I think the first time I rode with a power meter on was actually when in two thousand and eight, possibly um, when when we were with Garmin, we had the power tap wheels on the back, and yeah, um, unfortunately that didn't turn out so good. <laughs> I really wanted the power tap wheel, not quite take it. Is that weird? Um, no, more the rims. Um, so uh, I was, I was the first rider to um, to take the plunge on going carbon uh, on on Roubaix, and uh, it was a calculated gamble that we we'd done. We'd tested and tested and tested, um, been motor paced on, onto cobblestones at sixty plus k an hour, and nothing had happened. I'd raced on them on all the other cobbled races that year, not nothing had happened they were absolutely bomb-proof and straight uh, and there is one section as you enter the carrefour with the larbre on the right hand side about 25 meters into the section which you need to at all costs avoid whatever wheels you're riding basically but obviously being on on carbon it's probably slightly 
slightly more um, important to avoid them. And unfortunately, I kind of got squeezed across to that side. And as soon as I went there, I, I knew what was coming and I couldn't avoid it and hit the uh, that section and heard basically like someone fired a, a, a shotgun and um, both of my wheels looked like a... You know there were cracks basically resembling a mercedes sign um so um yeah they, they split in three in three places and it was only the tie that kind of held the wheel together wow but now of course everything's carbon right and comparing your bikes i mean eleanor i'm assuming you would ride um a demane uh yeah if so we... how do you i mean when you look at the bikes that your dad was riding and then magnus when you look at the bike your daughter's riding <laughs> who got who got the uh thin end of the wedge there well, I think I think I definitely came off on that <laughs> worse on that one. Yeah, it was it was basically um, titanium for me. That was the the best bike that I rode um, on there. Um, I mean, last year I rode as well. Was we we that was the first proper, you know, carbon specific Roubaix build that I had with uh, with Jim Felt. Yeah, it was a it was a different kettle of fish riding that compared to anything that I'd done previously. Um, you know the the winning bike that that was a complete one-off custom build between myself and Bianchi that we come up with. We, we were going to ride titanium rather than aluminium and carbon mix, um, and that was a revolution in itself to me. The technology and that we have nowadays, and I think the the R and D that goes into producing the right bikes for specifically for these kind of terrains uh, whether they're gravel bikes or um you know some manufacturers even going into specifically doing a roubaix bike it's a it's a completely different kettle of fish and a different sport altogether as as your dad mentioned there eleanor he was known for going to roubaix a few like quite a few times before the race with like a, basically a car full of gear and just racing the same bit of road and being like okay not that wheel maybe this tire Whereas obviously in the pro world these days, it's a lot more simple because as your dad mentioned, your 28 mil tyres will just be standard for everyone now. And Well, if they're riding 28 mil, I think they're going, they're, they're, they're going the wrong way. Um, you've got to be above 30 days, days to, to get the, the ride comfort on them. I've tried and tested as well. And um, I was the first rider to go um, really go 27 as, a, as standard, both front and rear. Um, and that was like a, a massive step forward. And now I've, I've been out a couple of times, just just kind of riding it with a group of friends. And I've gone for thirties, and I think thirty or thirty-two mil is definitely the way forward on on, on the cobblestones. And just drop the pressure down, and it, you know it, it transforms the whole ride again. So do you, do you reckon you'll be as as you go through your career, Eleanor, and you start to race the classics more and more? Do you reckon you'll be as fastidious as your dad, and sort of be as choosy over your kit because as some like some riders i've spoken to some pro bike riders and they could honestly they just get that given their bike and they race it and they they some of them wouldn't even know how to change a tire a puncture and i know that sounds like bad but some of them it's just that's the machine they race on but obviously for your dad it was a huge process do you reckon you'll be similar in that you'll want to go out recon make sure you've got the right tire pressure make sure you've got you know the right stem the right bars etc I do think I'll want to go out before, obviously. Um, he is very, very, very picky. Um, but also, like, I think by that point in the season, I'll have ridden that bike for 
a long time and I'll know and I'll trust it. And obviously at the moment we live by the cobbles. So, you know, the bike will be on cobbles pretty much four or five times a week, at least for one section. So, you know, I think I'll be fussy. I think I'll be picky, but maybe not to this man's extent. But also like the kit that we have now is a lot, like can do a lot more than what they had back then. And I think, you know, I could ride any bike over cobbles and it would still do its job. It just wouldn't potentially be optimal for cobbles, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, it, it does always beggar, not beggar belief is the wrong word, but it's, um, it's just always such an interesting circus seeing the stuff that comes out of Roubaix, or it always used to be. I mean, you used to see bikes like full suspension, Bianchi's falling apart. Um, you mentioned your, you know, people's head tubes snapping off. Uh, Hincapi famously snapped his head tube off uh, because Trek gave him a fork from a commuter bike because they didn't have one with clearance enough for the tyres that he wanted, so they took it off a hybrid. And you're like, all of these crazy things happening. And Magnus, you touched upon there your titanium frame, which I was told, and correct me if I'm wrong, was the most expensive bike in the Peloton that year, hands down. Apparently it cost €20,000 to make. I haven't got an exact number on it, but um, it was definitely, um, it was up there. So there's, you know, hydroforming titanium isn't cheap. Um, finding the right titanium that you can do that with as well, and that's stiff enough. And, and making one for a man that big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, so, so it was it was definitely, definitely up there with some of the, well, probably the most expensive. And, and it was a one-off as well, you know. So although I did make them, sort of build a couple of extras after that just because it was such a good bike so this is a question that always this is a very journalist question but we go to places like bianchi and they go look over here this is magnus backstead's Paris roubaix winning bike look it's still got the dirt on it and the dents in the top tube is the bike that i saw in italy yours or have you got it and they've just mocked up another one or that was one that never made production um that that got basically lifted um from the velodrome underneath the stem and underneath the saddle and carried into the truck planted in the truck and driven to italy and taken from there into uh, the bianchi factory so i do not have any of those uh titanium frames so uh, if you find one floating around outside of the bianchi factory um it's it's one of three um that was ever made wow Sad times, yeah. I always think that's a bit of a shame that you spend, you know, um, as you said, Eleanor, earlier, um, you will be on a bike for months and months and months before you end up racing, you know, before you end up racing Paris Bay. Um, you spend so much time sitting in a saddle, swapping atoms with the very fabric you're sitting on and you, and then you don't get to keep the bike. Like, that kind of sucks, doesn't it? Well, for, for me, it didn't. Um, I, I think you. It belongs in the factory there, and you know the fact that you can you can go into the factory and and have that tour, and you know it's Museo's double suspension bike is there. You got uh, Gimondi's bike is there, Coppi's bike is in there. You got Pantani's bike, so you know it's a museum that you can walk through the history of of the sport within that company, and and I much rather have people being able to 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 see that that piece of history in within the within that that factory and um and that particular brand rather than hanging you know down in the garage here and and collecting dust and no one really gets to see it apart from if i fancy showing showing off one day um and it's the same thing with uh, a couple of other bikes that i've had that were that've been quite special to me that 
you know, I just didn't didn't think you, it was right for them to to sit in my garage collecting dust. You know, they need to be be on show with uh, with that particular manufacturer. And and yeah, I I I, far, I think I I enjoy more the fact that people can see them. But and I guess you have also got a fairly sizable cobble somewhere on show in the house. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so people know when they come round for dinner that you you own Roubaix. So Magnus and Eleanor actually. So next April will be the first women's Roubaix, and it makes it unique because of all the races in the calendar, I would say Roubaix is the one that, firstly, it's the one that anyone in that peloton on the start line could probably win. And as we've seen at you know, the men's Roubaix, some of the winners we've had, even in recent years, it's been quite left field. And two, we always say, you know, experience wins you Roubaix, but we're going to have a peloton of... 130 women who have never ever raced over the cobbles. So even Anna van der Breggen and Annemiek van Vluten are going to have not an iota of idea of how bad it's going to be when they hit Monzon Pavel or Carrefour de Labra. So how do you both feel? How do you think that that will impact things in terms of that first ever race? I think obviously that's going to be difficult for a lot of riders, especially riders that have like less experience with cobbles because you know if you do something wrong as to pull the brake too much you know there's a big crash and you know you could be first second row and do that and take the whole peloton down with you and then you're not the favorite rider for a little bit but um yeah I think it'll have a big impact but I also think like the big riders that are potentially up there to win will have wrecked it enough that they know what they're doing um and it'll just be a matter of what happens on the day then who's the who's the kind of driving kind of um patron style force in the women's peloton the voice that you'll hear most shouting you know that would shout at you if you took down the peloton because we we found out recently that in the men's peloton it shocked us that Richie Port apparently he's in everyone's ear basically telling him off every five minutes which we were so surprised by also another one of my teammates then um Audrey Cordon Rago um she oh, yeah. is like the mum of the peloton um you will hear her in every language that she speaks <laughs> um but yeah also just kind of keeping everyone safe and you know if someone does something stupid you know like 10 15 k's into the race you will know about it and you'll be told not to do it again because you know you don't want to crash 10 15k into a race you know save that for when it actually matters um but yeah she's so nice and so lovely but you will hear her wherever you are in the peloton <laughs> and with those kind of um older older states people i guess um in the uh, in the women's um world tour is there a kind of sense that they are seeing something new happening whereby for your generation there's going to be a real tangible long-term career here it's not just going to be something that you have to scratch around for sponsors for uh and if you're lucky you might make thirty thousand euros a year for a couple of years but that's at the top 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 of the game do you feel like this we're on the cusp of something and and this is going to be a a long-term career for you and one day you'll be in a eurosport chair doing the commentary um absolutely like you know, last year was the first year that, or this year even, was the first year that we had a minimum wage. Um, so for obviously for women, like that is a big step forward. Um, you know, it's significantly lower than the men's, you know, significantly lower than even, you know, Conti level men's, but it's still a start that actually 
you know teams have to pay women if they are a world tour team so yeah i think that is definitely a big step forward and i think in future like the minimum wage will go up and up and up until it's you know somewhat equal and hopefully someday actually equal um but yeah i think you know now i'm like right at the start of something for women cycling and you know riders that are younger than me coming through will 100% have a career in this and you know they won't need to do anything else like when my mum was racing she had to have a job in Tesco's on the side just to kind of make a living and be able to support herself as an athlete and you know now I get paid for this as my job and I'm so lucky that I can actually have this as my job and just focus on this and you know give a hundred percent and do it properly and hopefully you know be in the sport for the rest of my life whether that be like on the bike or off the bike that's actually worth mentioning i was going to just quickly jump in there is that because your mum megan was a cyclist herself and a really talented one and her being it must have also been big for her to see that you've got an opportunity to do something that she would have never been able to dream of so when magnus her husband was winning roubaix she couldn't go oh maybe i could win that race one day or even race that race so it must be massive for her to now see her daughter not only being a pro cyclist who you know doesn't have to work in Tesco so that she can have the privilege of riding her bike but she's also got a daughter who can do near enough everything her husband did except from obviously still race the Tour de France but let's not get into that one now that'll come into <laughs> cause but I, I think like I'm saying that, that we're on the on the verge of of a real big breakthrough with with women cycling and if we're looking at the the viewing figures of of women cycling um any of the big races and the numbers are are going up and up and up every year and there's more and more of of the women's uh races on tv um whether it's linear tv or or, or digital platforms and, and so on it is being pushed massively and i think that there are so many women specific brands that would benefit from a marketing platform like cycling to to push their brands and it's just a question of waiting for that right moment when there's enough media coverage for that those companies to step in with 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 right money with big money and as we see in men's team the one team goes for with a bigger budget there's another one coming then with aspirations of being better and putting a slightly big, bigger budget in place and you know doing all the right things around the teams and then all of a sudden that starts filtering through as well to salaries as as the women are getting more and more popular and more well known i guess in 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 a in a way where you know they're becoming household names um in the, in their own right from us watching watching women cycling so it's a, it's just a question of time i think before we're we're at that point where this you know there will be a massive breakthrough and there'll be tons of teams coming with big budgets and i think it's safe to assume that with Paru bay next year I've always been of the, for the, at least the last few seasons, maybe not this season, the men have some really up their game in terms of excitement, but the women's racing is that tends to be a lot more exciting, a lot more open and a lot more less predictable, even if it does mean, you know, even when Annemiek van Vluten goes on these incredible runs of wins, it's a much more open race than the men's. It changed a bit this year. It was a, a weird year for men's racing and it, it was very unpredictable at points, but... For instance, next year at Roubaix, I could probably give you 
15 women's names that have all got just an equal chance of winning that race. Yeah, yeah and uh, then add another 10 that have really done their homework and been out there yeah. and, you know, learning their trade by uh, and, and just realising that by doing a bit of extra homework, they can make up for that couple of, you know, half a percent in, in sort of less of legs than some of the, the main favourites. But by doing their homework and getting everything right, they can they can potentially reach the top step of the podium. So before we move on to talk about Eleanor's first year and her injury, I feel it's always, I think it's only right, Magnus, to let you talk about 2004. <laughs> because why not? Because, you know, a Parry Wabin deserves to tell his story. So my first question to you is, is one, on the morning of that win, you were chatting to the late, great Paul Sherwin. And you complained that the Arenberg Forest was too dry for you, um, which was incredible because then when watching the live coverage and the peloton hit Arenberg, I'm sure you'll remember it, Rolf Aldag was on his own ahead of everyone and it was so muddy that he basically came to a standstill and a motorbike fell over in front of the peloton. So do you still think it was too too dry for you? Well, <laughs> the forest itself turned out to be quite good and quite exciting. Um I, it was that was the only point in the race where I actually had a bit of a bit of a moment, if uh, if if you know what I mean, where where things didn't quite go to uh, to plan. I ended up going sort of out. We didn't have barriers on both sides of the um, of the of the forest at that point. It was only on the right hand side, so I ended up kind of going out into the field somewhat um, because I got stuck behind Dario Pieri, um, the, the old Seiko rider, and tried to get past him and bike started drifting in all sorts of directions that he shouldn't and I, I sort of had to borderline bail out in off the cobbles into the mud and came back in again um and lost a fair fair few places with it. Um so yeah that 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 the forest was alright. That I enjoyed that bit. Um the rest of the day was a bit too dry. And talk us through I mean you again you've you've said it loads of times but it's still worth mentioning. I remember so I was watching it earlier and for a long time, George Shinkaki, Juan Antonio Fletcher and Tom Boonham were out front. And those are three, three names that anyone will tell you even now. You don't let off the front because any other, you know, any other day they could have gone and you'd never seen them again. But you managed to get them back. And then you go off with uh, Yer Musée, who's ret- at last Roubaix. But obviously he punctures and then you go into the velodrome in that reduced group. What was your... Psyche. Firstly, when you see Musea go out the back, and then secondly, because when I've done it and James has done it, is riding into Roubaix. So that really long downhill road. What what's going through your mind at that point? If I go back a couple of steps, there, um, when when I sort of got into the front group properly, um, I had Fabio Baldato with me there, and um, you know I was kind of sitting on the back of that group quite for quite a long period of time. It must have been a good probably twenty five thirty riders left at that point. And I remember Fabio came back to me and said, you know, are you all right? Are you good? And and at that point, I, I sort of, I said, look, I don't think the mechanic has put a chain on, on the bike today. And he looked at me with big eyes and kind of went, you for real? And he said, I said, I haven't touched the pedals yet. And he says, at that point, he said, right, look after Museo and uh, Van Pietigem and Stefan Weissman. Those are the three main guys that, that either of those three are going to win today. And, um, you know, that was basically what I I did, and he said he would pretty much cover everything else. 
um, and he did you know a, a, an amazing job in in bringing two groups back and he rode like 10 men that day to to bring it back together just before the uh, the carrefour um, a couple of occasions where Johan um, attacked and I was straight on his wheel following you know and that was kind of the moment when I realized I actually have a shot at this where I, when I I could respond to Museo's attack across the cobbles and actually close down a gap on him that that for me was like okay I'm I'm really good today um and then like I said we're going across the Carrefour and whittled down to five riders Cancellara Hoffman Roger Hammond Museo myself um and it was like even more than okay this is really going luckily for for us um Van Petergem had a mechanical just before um before the Carrefour and was on the chasing foot already then and looking at the pictures behind you know I think we were lucky that he did have that mechanical because none of us would have been able to stay with him otherwise um but then yeah when Museo punctured um I I missed the stone that he hit by fractions of a millimeter um and you know a bit of luck on my side and then yeah like I said coming down into the that main straight towards the kilometer to go sign when you know we turn off in towards the velodrome um, I, I don't think I thought an awful lot to be honest with you it was it was just focusing on trying to kind of keep an eye on what I knew Roger Hammond is is super quick in a sprint and I was going to mention did you because you're friends with Roger Hammond when you trained with him did you talk to him much in that last bit we didn't really speak an awful lot. There was a couple of couple of words, um, you know, on the way in there. Um, but I think he was trying to check me out, and I was trying to check him out. Um, well, I mean, the amount of, of the number of sprints that we've done against each other in training down the canals in Belgium, um, you know, it was a regular occurrence for about two or three years when we lived together, and uh, you know, we shared an apartment and house over in in, in Belgium there. So I knew exactly what he was capable of and he knew exactly what I was capable of. So for me, that was he was the biggest threat and and also not sort of messing up the the sprint on the velodrome um, and getting yourself boxed in, which um, I managed to do. Um, but yeah, as we got into the velodrome, it was, I, I knew Cancellara was on the front, Rog was um, just on the outside of him, I was on Rog's wheel. Um, and Tristan Hoffman was was behind me, and as we're going around the, the the sort of coming out of turn two on on the banking there, I I decided I was going to launch my sprint on the back straight because I felt like I had the legs to uh, to carry that all the way through, and right at the very same millisecond, Rog goes as well, and he manages to so basically close me up against the the inside of the uh, the velodrome. So I'm blocked by Cancellara in front of me, Roger Hammond on the outside of me, and somehow um all the video footage that i've gone through um in the preparations for this race looking at all the sprints on the velodrome how they happen who moves where and why and when um i just stayed cool the the normal thing would have been to back out of it try and go over the top but somewhere in the back of my mind i knew that roger if i just stayed where i was Roger was going to have to go on the outside of Cancellara and the moment he does that Cancellara is going to start drifting up the velodrome a bit to take Roger the, the long way around and that would open up a, a clear run on the inside on the cut that's all for me and it was just a question of waiting and hoping that that was going to happen and luckily it did. It takes some like some nerve to be like oh that's fine that gap's going to open up 
Because the amount of riders, I remember not too long ago, Ian Stannard, when he came third, he said that he, not bottled it, but he made that jump. He's like, I've got to go outside, went outside and then ends up not not having the legs. But, but I think it's it's when when you do enough research and enough and, and look at the, all these things in a, in a way, in an analytical way and following different riders through the the sprints again and again and again and various different years, um, various different groups and so on, seeing that somehow it kind of became second nature and, and it was just a, a reaction to a situation that I'd seen and, and, and an unconscious one as well. So, um, you know, and I, and I do still believe that to win the race, you have to be willing to sacrifice the race. And that was the, that was the only way I was going to win it was by staying where I was and, and gambling on the fact that that Cotas was going to have enough space on it for me to go through. Um, it could it could have gone pear shaped um, without a shadow of a doubt, but um, obviously I'm very grateful it didn't. But also, frankly, let's be honest, Ian Stannard isn't heavy enough to win Paris Roubaix. I mean, you probably have because <laughs> I think I think by our we we've been through this before, haven't we, Joe? Weirdly, when we when we were actually in an office together, not just doing this, um, it's popped up like you know lightest and heaviest riders to have won something, and there's some Spanish riders that are incredibly light. But I think you you are, and I mean this with all due respect, the heaviest guy to ever win a a big bike race at 94 kilos is that correct well it was actually 96 on the morning of Roubaix no way wow <laughs> it just goes to show I think that it's it's not necessarily the weight of how light you are and whatever is is how much power you put into the pedals and and if that equation works out and let's face it, it never did when it when the road went uphill too much um but Roubaix is flat enough for 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 me to to generate uh, the power and and sort of make that travel fast instead and you know like I said any any crosswind section I, I was trying working out with someone the other day trying to think of how many crosswind splits that I've actually missed in my career and I don't think I, I couldn't I couldn't count up that many the, you know uh, I may have missed it initially but most of the time I've ridden across into the front group and been part of the front group in in, in an echelon again so um, you know, everyone has got their way of and and their their the thing that they do well within cycling, uh, and I think that's part of what makes the sport so so interesting as well. Is that you got so many different types of riders, and they they all have that one thing that they do super well. And you know, the flat roads and the cobbled roads that that's where I did my thing, um, and and I managed to do a have a really really good career by by doing exactly that. Last one before we go back on to we move back onto Eleanor. Where you were in the in that top ten that day and in that front group with you was Fabian Cancellara and a bit further back was Tom Boonham, who it just so turns out turned out to both be two of the greatest cobble classic riders of all time. Did you know back then, obviously on that day you'd just lost to Tom Boonham at Gentwevel game earlier that week, but did you know that Tom and Fabian, because actually during that race, Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin had no idea who Fabian Cancellara was, and they kept they didn't they kept calling him as a different person. Did you know that those two were going to be like absolutely gold dust on the cobbles, looking at them racing with Fabian that day, who was in that league group with you? Yeah, I think I think you could tell that that they were they were two very very talented riders, and and especially in the classics, they were you know yeah like you say some of the best riders ever um and and you could see that that they were already starting to shape in towards something something like that 
whether whether you you know I, th I think it was actually Fabian's first first Roubaix that year and obviously if you can place that high up in 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 your first ever then then the chances of him going to, going ahead and winning at some point are pretty pretty big um so yeah i i think that definitely i i kind of had a a hunch let's call it that then that they were going to be they were going to be good um the fact that they were going to be as great as they both were that you know that was anyone's guess at that point i think so um elena we'll come back on to you because i'm i'm sure you've heard that story as you said at least once every April for the last 19 years. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so before, you know, before you can start dreaming of Roubaix, you've got, first of all, you've got to get back to full fitness. It's worth mentioning you had quite a bad injury and crash this year. So for the for the benefit of the listener, can you explain? So you were out mountain biking, I believe, with your dad and your little sister Zoe. Can you explain what, what happened to you in May, wasn't it? Yeah, we were out mountain biking. I mean, I don't do that much mountain biking, but I have enough skill to do some. Um, but yeah, we were coming down a descent, just, you know, it was fairly steep, but nothing too special. Um, I wasn't going very fast because I was a bit scared. But um, yeah, my front wheel just slipped out on some dry mud um, and I just put my leg down to kind of catch myself Um and as I remember it really is just that I fell onto my leg with the bike attached to me um, and I just heard like a crack and I just knew instantly like before even the pain had come through and I literally said to dad in like the most casual voice like oh yeah I just broke my leg and he was like what do you mean you just broke your leg and I was like no I just broke my leg and then the pain came through and he very quickly realised that I wasn't kidding. <laughs> and as a dad, how's like watching that? That must be not a great experience. Not a great experience. More gutting than anything else. Um, that something like that would happen. Again, you know. Again, <laughs> um, she's done a very similar break earlier when she was younger. Um, and also in a year that was supposed to be the greatest, you know, year of her of her life so far. Um, you know, turning professional, riding with the one of the biggest teams out there, um, and and getting to, you know, start her her career really. Um, and then obviously with COVID happening, and then this happening on top of that as well. Um, it was. Some very strange feelings going on in my head when 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 I was stood there with um, trying to support her leg for I don't know how many hours. <laughs> like two hours yeah. in oh. like a squat position holding my leg. The smallest movement was. How, so how remote was the crash? Like how long did it take? Because I, I read on the BBC that reported on the crash that the the ambulance services did take a while. Was it because you were in quite a off the beaten track bit of Wales or was? Uh, we we weren't that far away from. But we know. we had to use the my three words app, or you know the one where it gives you like the words to say like orange or something random yeah. like that. You've bro you've broken your leg, and it asks you to say like shoe, megaphone, speaker. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. exactly. So, so to locate us, that that was that was obviously a little bit tricky. Um, and then we were halfway the up, like some steep mountain so then the ambulance couldn't get to us and then they had to phone the mountain rescue and they've sent like a paramedics car in the meantime with some 
gas so I wasn't in as much pain and then the actual ambulance had to get there and we had to use like a off-road stretcher to try and get me down and it was carnage. <laughs> and then so you suffered a spiral fracture I believe in the right in the tibia which sounds horrible so how long were you off the bike so, so you've been on the back on the bike I saw on your Instagram for about two two months now yeah about five months in total um off the bike I had two casts up to my quad for about two months and then I had six weeks in a cast that was above at the front and below at the back so I could bend my knee and then I had another six weeks in a boot. That sounds serious. And how's how's it all? So how's the rehab going? How's how's the leg feeling? First of all, how's the riding? Is it? Luckily, you're young. So when when stuff breaks when you're young, it normally is fine because you're young. When it happens when you're older, as I'm finding out, I'm not much older than you, but it takes so much longer than. To, to repair so is it all looking good are you all feeling fine yeah it's all looking and feeling fine I mean obviously like certain movements are still going to be some pain and you know not pain as in it's going to break again but just because it's not done that for a long time um so it's just like taking things slow and making sure that it is you know getting back to strength in the right way and that there's no weaknesses for the future as well um you know I can do about two and a half hours at the moment um like day after day um so it's just slowly getting back i think it's fair to say as well that you know i've obviously gone gone through the sport on for for quite a number of years as as a rider and watching watching the sport from the sideline as well for 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 a long time yeah um and the way that that you know trick say alfredo have, have looked after eleanor and the patience the the guidance the you know just They've really been really been incredible in terms of how they looked after their their athlete their investment um and just just really straight away just saying no definitely there's not going to be any any racing at all this year you're not even going to attempt to get back that yeah. was the best thing that anyone could have said at any point i think yeah. to to sort of switch off that okay and, it's not a race to get back and and i guess as well harking back to what we said earlier the fact as well that you have a three year contract in your head, you don't have to... A few years ago, if you'd have been a 19-year-old, you'd have been on a one-year deal, probably. And you'd have been like, oh, I, I've... because at the time, you'd only raced twice, I think, before lockdown. So so back in your dad's day, you'd have been like, oh, no, I've raced twice, broken my leg, and that's me done for the season. And there's no way that that team's going to renew my contract. But because women's cycling's progressed, and Trek Segafredo seemed like one of the real leading lights, actually you've got a three-year deal so they can say don't worry about it recover but, but i think this, the sport is going more and more in that direction as well you really do look after the riders and and their health uh and you can you're better off sort of taking that bit of extra time and getting a a rider back and getting that rider back in full um it's like when so, lizzie had a baby isn't yeah, it really full, full ability rather than than stressing them back and having them back at 80 percent for the rest of their career so you know i i, I gotta say I, I really do take my hat off to the whole team mm. um the way they, they they looked after i wish i wish you know i had teams like that when i was racing on another on a few occasions where mm. they would have done the same thing and remove the decision making from the rider and <laughs> look at it with 
a, a sensible point. A, in in a sensible way with a with with you know and and really Doctor's with opinions with... as well. And... Well, as you, as you said there, Eleanor, they they didn't rush Lizzie back from her child, and she went and won GP Pluet La Course in the Edge this year. So it's paid off for them, isn't it? It's she did one three of the biggest races in the calendar. Yeah, patience is key, definitely. This is an incredible place to find yourself, though. Um, yeah, as not just outlining the fact that um, the team has won, had a very, very good season, finished top of the UCI rankings, but also, as you say, really well looked after. How does it feel to go into what's ostensibly about to be the greatest team in uh, the women's sport at this this young age? I mean, where do you, where do you go from here? I signed when I was 17, so as a 17-year-old, because uh, obviously my birthday is late in the year, so I hadn't turned 18 when I signed um but yeah going to the first camp as a 17 year old and you know meeting Lizzie Ellen Elisa you know Mads was there Vincenzo was there I'm just walking into this room full of all these people and you know growing up like these people were my idols you know and now it's like okay now they're my teammates and actually trying to switch from like between the two was quite a challenge um because obviously you are like extremely starstruck when <laughs> when you do meet these people like any 17 18 year old person would be but um you know they are all just so incredibly nice and they've all been so helpful which you know it really does change things because then they become your friends and i think they they look after me as like their little sister but in like a nice way that they don't treat me like i'm the age that i am they treat me as if I'm one of them which again is such a nice thing and they just want to help me learn as well which yeah it's been great <laughs> so who's been your kind of uh, best mentor I guess I'm just thinking I've had very low-key jobs compared to you but for at least the first six months I have what they call imposter syndrome that feeling that I shouldn't be here someone's going to find out in a minute I'm I'm not the candidate that I'm supposed to be <laughs> Did, did you have those moments what you know how and when did they come and how were you kind of coached through them um obviously like it it is a bit of a surreal job to go into as an 18 year old um you know I sometimes yeah do feel like I shouldn't be there but I have to remind myself that I'm also there for a reason they contact me for a reason they sign me for a reason so they believe in me and you know I am there for a reason because I'm good enough um but obviously sometimes it does mess with your head when you know the first camp I went to I roomed with Ellen Van Dyke for a week and you know that to me was crazy that that was actually happening but you know it it does calm down after a while you know you get used to it you get used to all the teammates and all the staff did um was there anyone who was particularly helpful when you were obviously out with your broken leg was there anyone in the team that really coached you and gave you advice I know you've said before when you're on camps that Lizzie almost goes into a bit because she's a mum she goes into like mum mode a little bit and obviously you're both British so there's a, like that connection but when you were out was there anyone who came to you and sort of said like oh I've had this injury don't worry or anything like that the DS Ina she has been there the most you know she's been the end of the phone she's come round to the house sometimes because I live quite close to the service course just as a checkup, you know, before the racing started, she would come to see me. After the season finished, she came to see me and just, you know, check my progress as well. So she's been the most help, but all, equally, like all the girls have just 
you know messaged and just you know checked that I'm like mentally okay that I'm actually healing properly and you know oh when will I see you next and things like that which is yeah it's been amazing so you mentioned that um being visited when you were in Belgium because you lived near the service so you moved you moved out when did you move out to Belgium I mean, do, you live there, do you live there on your own or is it kind of team supported how does that work no I live with my boyfriend in our house um it's not like attached to the team or anything just the service course is just happens to be about half hour away um so i am close to everything if i if i need anything or if, you know like ina came to see me so it is it is close which is great um but yeah we just live by ourselves <laughs> and how, how's your flemish is it as good as your welsh no <laughs> do you reckon because your your dad famously speaks um i think it's every single language in europe not, in not europe. quite i think that's a bit so, of an exaggeration or, but <laughs> but how how's it coming do you one do you want to learn flemish and two um what what's the biggest thing you miss from wows from being at home and what's the best thing about being in belgium that's not bike related that's a lot of questions in one okay um, I do want to learn Flemish and I am trying. I go on my little Duolingo every day and you know, most days, you know, I'm not religious about it, but you know, I do try. Um, you know, I say my please and my thank you when I go to the supermarket and stuff. Um but yeah, I, I am trying and it's a very useful language in the cycling community. Um the thing I miss most about Wales, probably my family. However, this year they have spent a lot of time in our house, so I have seen them a lot. And, and, and you here. <laughs> yeah, and us here. Um, and my dogs, because we don't have dogs, obviously. Um, so I do miss them a lot. But also I think, like, Wales is such a community and I do sometimes miss, like, that feeling of just knowing every person you see on the street. Um, but also the best thing about Belgium is that you know, I've got the cobbles, I'm in driving distance to every important race that I will be doing this year. Um, you know, even all the races in the Netherlands, maximum four hours. Same with races in France, you know, I'm, I'm there and I'm close. So it's also super easy like that. But also the weather is just a little bit more consistent than Wales. So <laughs> the summers are warmer, the winters are colder, but they rain less. So and 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 the the chips are better. Yeah, and, and Belgian waffles and, and, and Belgian waffles and chocolate. So I was going to say before we've we've sort of gone over our time. So before we go, Eleanor and Magnus, I feel like it'd be a good time to predict who you think will win the first women's Paru Bay. My money's on Lucinda cracker of a cyclocross season I, th I think she will be difficult to beat mm. yeah. my my pick is one of your teammates maybe Ellen van Dyke I feel like his suits her a lot or I just feel like Anna van der Breggen has to has the right to win every race at least once you can <laughs> never discount her and yeah. as you said it's last season um you know it's um it's a big one to try and pull off definitely but I think looking at the way this season is going, has gone, the lack of racing um, that everyone has had, um, the fact that I think Lucinda is getting a few more race days under her belt now sure. with the cyclocross at a very, very high intensity because the cross has gone up another level. 
um, and she's winning consistently there now. I think if managed right, um, getting her to the to the middle of April shouldn't be too difficult, and I think she will be coming in with her cross legs onto uh, the classics. Uh, so it wouldn't I wouldn't even put it past her winning Flanders and Roubaix. Magnus Backstead, ladies and gentlemen, and Eleanor Backstead, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what I most liked about that is there wasn't a feeling of pushy parent. Well, I just felt like two people that just were basically mates. I always like it when parents are also mates with their kids. I'm not saying that that's like that um, out of the ordinary, but at the same time, it really does shine through. And they just sounded like mates that both really liked cycling, egging each other on. Um, I'd like to have Maggie in my corner. Um, you know, wrenching for me, shouting at me, throwing me gels. I mean, I bet he could throw a gel about a mile. He's got big old arms. Um, and the best of luck to Eleanor as well, because I think she's, you know, she is uh, in the early stages of a, what's going to be a wicked career, hopefully. But um, there's every reason why she shouldn't be one of the stand-up performers at Roubaix. And who knows what might happen this year, and it, certainly in subsequent years, in with a great shout to be that first father-daughter Roubaix double act. And how exciting is that? Like, we've always been like, oh, when's the first British winner of Paris Bay going to be? And imagine if it's a woman, how excellent that would be if, like, after all these over 100 years of being like, oh, when's the British Royale going to win? And a woman does it. I'd love that. <laughs> I'd absolutely love that. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, they were, uh, yeah, I mean, I still probably. It's that Roubaix is still the sort of race that puts me off ever wanting to be a pro, but it does sound like it's quite fun being a professional living in two different places, one of them being Wales, the other one being Europe's version of Wales, which is Belgium, kind of home <laughs> from home, yeah. uh, and seriously putting in the miles over the winter to rock up to Roubaix, hopefully. I mean, and we also hope that Roubaix will be um, a horrible day of yeah snow flash flooding like you know mud hurricanes yeah mud there's not even up. hurricanes in belgium but no knows? well every day's a hurricane in belgium you ever been out on a sort of flandrian hillside well not even hillsides a flandrian flat just on a regular day every it's direction's just, a headwind every direction's a headwind it's just absolutely bonkers every direction's a headwind and every field is a crime scene it just looks like something out of a the Scandi Noir drama, very bleak place. Which would suit uh, Magnus and Eleanor, as they are obviously Swedish. Yeah, so precisely, precisely. If anyone's suited to the the bleak fields of Flanders, it's it's those two. Indeed, um, but something else that would uh, pertains to Mister Backstead that um, suits him very well was his weight for Paris Roubaix in a strange way, mm. uh, because it doesn't hurt you necessarily being a heavy rider at Roubaix. Someone like Ian Stannard in the kind of more recent past has uh, has shown that as well. Just It's a race for the big boys. A race for the big boys. But that's not that there's not that many of those races. In the Tour de France certainly isn't a race for the big boys. And as you pointed out, Joseph, uh we think that Magnus was the heaviest rider to ever complete the Tour de France. So I could be wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure, yeah, that Magnus Backstead was the heaviest rider to have ever rode, completed a Tour de France. If we even take into consideration, like, other people that we regard as, like, big guys on the bike, Fabian Cancellara, um, Tom Boonen, even those guys were only around the 80 kilo mark. All over six foot. And I ran the numbers and it puts him in a, um, a BMI of uh, 25 and a half, 
for his height. He's 193 centimeters, whatever that is in old money. Not sure, but uh, yeah, put, it's, he's technically overweight according <laughs> to the NHS. <laughs> He'd get vaccinated quicker than uh, the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's on the list. So this sent us down a so this sent us down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole to try and think of try and find out who the lightest rider is. Yeah, we haven't got an official. There might have been someone lighter, but chances are that has been very unlikely. But Jose Rujano, who rode in the remind me again, James, is it two thousand and six Tour de France, two thousand five Tour de France? Uh, you tell me, mate. Your your knowledge on these things is a lot better than mine. Anyway, Jose Rujano, who is a Venezuelan climber, who won a stage of the two thousand five Giro d'Italia to Sestriere, went over the Colle de Finestra. He finished third on the podium. He was riding for the Colombia Seller Italia team at the time, which is now known as Androni Giogattoli Cidermec, which is coincidentally an Italian toy shop. Coincidentally. Anyway, Jose Rihano was 48 kilos. Ewa, wewa, 48 kilos. So Jose Rihano was 50%, almost 50% the weight of Magnus Baxter. Both of them, both competed in the Tour de France. Uh, he was also the same weight as 1.7 Dalmatians, uh, a tenth of a grand piano, a Steinway, um, approximately 10 times the weight of an average cat. 4.8 kilos for a cat. It's quite a lot. And get this, the precise, almost the precise weight of a fully grown giant Pacific octopus, which is just kind of incredible on many levels the fact there's a 50 kilo 48 kilo octopus knocking about somewhere in the pacific um and i'd like i'd pay to see that an octopus riding over the alps how many pedals could you have if you're an octopus presumably you could have you could have six because you need to put your hands on the bars so you could ride your own t- you could ride your own tandem and still have two extra hands to i don't know saute some onions and a little over a little bunsen burner to your right and chop some stuff and hold onto the bars. So yeah, I mean that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Um, other little stats that came up around sort of like body type and weight and that. One of the shortest riders ever remains to this day the first Tour de France winner ever, uh, Maurice Garin, who was five foot four, which is presumably why he made such a cracking chimney sweep. The same height as Jose Rujano. Really? There is a there is a rider that's shorter, Samuel uh, de Moulin, five three, five three. He was, um, there's an excellent picture of him next to um, former Irish, former Aqua Blue rider, now GCM presented, uh, Connor Dunn, who I believe is 6'8". Connor Dunn, 6'8", yeah, I think probably the tallest rider to ever have, ever have ridden a Tour de France. Um, but overall, Tour de France mean weight is down since 1990, which does rather play into the idea that your bigger lads did compete, uh, well, people have gotten consistently uh, slimmer, particularly in the in the torso, so it's down by five kilos is your mean weight, and you can see that in, I mean that you know aero kit wasn't the thing it is today, but you you know i.e. jerseys were baggier, but you can see jerseys needed to be baggier. You had a, quite a lot of like upper body strength in older riders, um, and you know we don't sort of you know we mention him with uh, in hushed tones, but Armstrong to me always personified. Armstrong, unfortunately, that real doping generation. Probably because I had so much testosterone, but Ulrich and Armstrong and Reese, you know, they they could have been pretty well built tennis players or um, light featherweight boxers or something. They could they could certainly handle themselves in an arm wrestle. Yeah, they absolutely could. So, you know, there we go. Uh, the world is getting lighter. It just makes you and I feel fatter. But hey, we ride for fun. We don't ride to win. On that note, let's bring it to an end, James. Uh, another 
successful episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I think the re- I think the listeners will be the judge of that, Joe. Let's not get well, ahead of ourselves. If they enjoyed it, make sure you leave a review or a comment on the Cyclist Magazine podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with any of your cycling friends, of course. Please do that. Um, but for now, James, I'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, these are two thumbs up and they're both for you. <laughs> <laughs>